Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Back in episode 51 from November 2023, I talked with three programs focused on engaging younger folks in and just out of college in conservative ideas and free market principles. But just because you aren't 25 anymore doesn't mean it's too late for you to immerse yourself in these ideas in a structured way. Today, we're going to talk with three what you might call grown-up training programs. These are all for mid-career professionals looking to deepen their knowledge of free market, political, and economic thought and theories. First up is going to be Lindsey Craig of the National Review Institute to talk about its Burke to Buckley program. Then David McIntosh joins us from the Club for Growth Foundation to talk about its Fellows program. Rounding it out, Rebecca Good from American Enterprise Institute shares the latest on AEI's Leadership Network. Whether you are a donor worried that there is no good way to train folks past college in these ideas, or you yourself are in the middle of your career and looking for just this type of program, I know you're going to enjoy hearing what these guests have to say. So let's jump in. National Review is an entity that likely needs no introduction for those listening to this podcast. Many folks probably read the magazine here and there or follow National Review writers online, but some of the folks may be less knowledgeable about the National Review Institute, the C3 educational arm that preserves and advances the legacy of William F. Buckley and the great conservative principles he espoused so eloquently. One of the several great programs that the Institute runs is the Burke to Buckley Fellowship, which specifically targets mid-career professionals for a deep dive into conservative thought. NRI's wonderful and talented president, Lindsey Craig, joins me to dive into this. Hello, Lindsey. Hello, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. So the Burke to Buckley program is really interesting in that it's very clear on who it is not targeting and who it is targeting. Uh, your material clearly states this program is not intended for recent graduates or people working in the fields of public policy or politics. So who does fill the seats at these things? Well, we're really looking for a cohort of people who likely went through their college education studying their chosen profession, right? So most higher ed programs have little time to take history of economic thought or what is conservatism or for that matter, what is Marxism? But they do have uh, a lot of time for taking math if you're pre-med or if you're an accounting major, right? And so even if you're an econ major, you might not be able to take history of economic thought. And so we have found that there are people who sort of wake up and realize this Um, and we would love to be able to provide a a program for them just in the same way that Bill Buckley did when he was writing his columns and going and speaking to people all over the country. This is an opportunity for us to be able to carry on that part of his legacy. And so what does that look like, the program itself? It's it's multi-week. It's uh, a lot of reading, I imagine. It's a lot of reading, exactly. So what we do is host this over eight sessions, They are over dinner. 
we always have the same format of a open hollow square in all the locations. We have different discussion leaders for each topic. So we have somebody who is actually an expert in that topic to come and lead the discussion. So people um, who are uh, apply for the class take the entire eight sessions together. And then that's like the 2023 or 2024 class in a, in a certain city. And so they go through all of the class work together. And we're hoping that that ends up not only helping to reinforce the educational aspect of this, but also the community aspect of it. And one of the things that we have found over, over the years, now it's 10 years going, that as people get more comfortable with each other and meeting in person, not just over Zoom, um, that they can learn a lot more from each other. And uh, we think that that's, that's an important aspect of the program. And are most of the folks doing the teaching National Review writers or National Review Institute scholars, or, or does it go outside those bounds? It goes outside those bounds. So we, what we try to do is have uh, some people, uh, the, the discussion leaders are sort of the, our regulars, right? So, you know, Brian Anderson teaches Burke and Catherine Lopez always uh, teaches the last session on gratitude. And every session, uh, or every class rather, starts with a session on Bill Buckley by Lee Edwards. Uh, but then we also try to draw on local talent. Um, so in Dallas, uh, Christopher Wolf teaches for us. And uh, we try to get local, usually professors, um, but it could be people who are experts that are associated with other think tank groups that are in um, you know, the different cities that we have. And so you mentioned the different cities. So one of the other interesting things about the program is that you don't make everybody come to New York. You do one in New York, uh, but NRA is based in New York, uh, obviously has a presence in D.C., but you're not just forcing people to come to those cities. I don't even think you do D.C. So you have them in, in Philadelphia, in uh, Chicago, in Miami, in these different places. And so you're actually out there. I think that's really, really neat. Tell us about what that makes possible. Well, early on when we were we were sort of launching the program, and I want to give a big shout out to uh, Dan Mahoney, who is a, a former professor at Assumption College, and he was a board member at National Review Institute. And uh, I came to him with this idea to say, let's create something that looks into the history of economic thought, and we can bring it to the communities that we're trying to develop all around the country. So... It's the same curriculum, but in all the different areas. And the idea was to bring people together by having the exact same curriculum, but like you said, in their areas, help to develop those communities um, you know, where they are. What we also did early on in terms of choosing our, our areas was um, as we were sort of reinvigorating National Review Institute, we had done a heat map to look at where should we really be focusing? Like you can't be everywhere all the time and not just with limited resources, but also limited time. So if we concentrated in certain areas, we would with Burke to Buckley program, but also with other forums that we would have both solo hosted and also we have a partnership program where we um, partner with local organizations uh, to host national review writers that we would be in those areas a regular amount, and so we could help to build a community. And the Burke to Buckley program feeds into that as alumni, um, but also we can tell that our donor community appreciates the fact that we're also having something that is reaching out and bringing in new people to the community. Yeah, getting in new faces, new blood, 
uh, and people who are busy in their professional lives who aren't thinking about this stuff but care about it and would get it if they had the time. Yeah, uh, it is a really really valuable thing. And you know, you, I know the community is really important. Does that community hang together? I mean, do you see? these folks still connecting six months, a year, two years after the program's over? Yeah, we really do. And there's a couple of aspects to that, which I think are really important. One is we want the people who code through the program to do it with with the understanding that we actually do want to continue to have a relationship with them, right? That it's not just totally transactional. Um, some people take the course and then they you know, go on. Most people, the vast majority take the course, and then become part of the alumni group in that area. Now, that is helped along considerably by the coordinator. So each the, the way that the program is run is that each city actually has a, a, a coordinator for a year who is an alumni. So they've been through the course, and then that's the person that interacts with our office, right, on the venue, on the menu, goes through all the applications and such, and uh, they're the ones that are there every session with the different discussion leaders, but also can help to make sure if like somebody's really having a hard time with the reading or, you know, just like a proper teacher would do, do they need a little extra time? Do they need, do they need some help? Also, sometimes we have very enthusiastic people and sort of helping to uh, moderate how much time they take during the session. Uh, so it's a really important role both at the dinners themselves, but then also helping to keep the community together. So they have happy hours, um, they have recruiting uh, events where we can they can bring a friend and uh, help to expand the group of people who are applying to the program. Um, in some in some of the cities, uh, alumni have gotten together and have a book club. Uh, and in some cities, uh, People will like host a holiday party and then have all of the people, the alumni uh, in, in their area come to the holiday party. I think that one of the things that's been, I think to me, very satisfying is that the group wants to be involved. And then, of course, as a nonprofit, one of the things we also want to do is be able to see how they can become part of the life of the organization as donors. And so we've been very proud about the fact that we they, many of them join our 1955 society in the year that they take the class. Um, about 20% do that right that year. So there's a program fee. And then if they top off their program fee uh, to get to the $1,000 donor level, then we consider them 1955 society members for that year. And then many of those renew. Um, and as I have mentioned, uh, I'm very excited about the fact that at this last prize dinner that we had, the William F. Buckley Jr. prize dinner that we had in New York City, out of the 425 people who attended the event, almost 60 of them were Burke to Buckley alumni. And, you know, that's really important. And three of them were table sponsors. And, you know, that's $12,000. That's a lot of money. And I think um, I mentioned that here to your community because I think this is what we all want. We want people who love your organization so much, right? They appreciate, they have some gratitude for the way that they came in, but that they see that there's so much more there and that there's a lot more ways that they can be involved and that there's a lot of other programs that they can be supporting philanthropically. Um, and I think that that, I'm very proud of that aspect of the, of the program. Well put. Uh, that's great. So shifting away from the program for kind of the broader work of NRI, we're going into a noisy election year. Uh, I don't know if 
William F. Buckley's ideas of conservatism are going to be at the forefront of a lot of arguments, but NRI is there pushing some of these ideas. So what is on the horizon for NRI to keep these principles of conservatism on across the country? Well, um, your opening was well stated, um, and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, uh, look, for us organizationally, we think that there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity, particularly given the fact that there is a lot of noise, right? Noise means that, that, that people haven't settled on something, and uh, that is an opportunity for us as an organization. Last year, uh, the boards of National Review and National Review Institute started a strategic planning process as we lead up to 2025, which is Bill Buckley's 100th birthday. Uh, so this is really a good time for us to examine sort of where we are and where we want to be. Uh, it was about 10 years ago now, a little over 10 years ago, that we revamped National Review Institute, the nonprofit, as you mentioned, that supports National Review. Um, and we know that there's been a tremendous success. I mean, we've grown from you know, negative to this year's budget is $8.4 million. Uh, but we know that there's a lot more that we can do. And there is a tremendous amount that National Review, the editorial publication, like the magazine and online and all the video podcasts and everything that you all see, that we can transform and, and really make into a 21st century media company. I mean, National Review, as you mentioned at the top, probably needs no introduction. I mean, it has an ex incredibly long uh, now almost 70 years uh, history of being highly influential to not just the influential people at the sort of the top of the food chain, but everybody. And we think that that's really an important history of ours. And we want to make sure that we continue to build on that by expanding our audiences at through the Institute programs and also um, at National Review. Well, it's an important legacy to keep strong, uh, both Buckley's legacy, but the magazine itself and these ideas. So we are delighted that National Review Institute is keeping him going. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you so much. I just want to say one other thing. We are launching our classes uh, in New York, Philadelphia, and Miami. I think there's a few open spots. And then in the fall, we're hoping to launch in Silicon Valley, uh, which is basically the old San Francisco program, which closed for a few years during during COVID that we want to relaunch out there along with Chicago and Dallas. So those are the fall programs and the spring programs. If you're interested, you need to get in touch with the one and only Lynn Gibson, uh, who has been managing this program for us uh, since its inception in 2014. So we owe just a tremendous amount of gratitude uh, to Lynn and everything that she has done to, to make the program the success it is. So please get in touch with her. All right. Excellent. Excellent call for, for more involvement. Thank you, Lindsay. One of the classic brands, the prestige brands in free market politics is the Club for Growth. Since 1999, it has been a critical leader in identifying candidates for office that care about free trade, limited government, tax relief, and overall a strong pro-growth economic climate for America. It long operated as a political operation, with 501c4 and PAC, etc., but a few years ago launched the Club for Growth Foundation, a 501c3 educational arm to go deeper into policy, establish an economic scorecard, and, as we're going to explore today, train future leaders. It does that with its Club for Growth Foundation Fellowship, equipping public and private leaders with foundational principles on core issues. And to unpack what all that means is Club for Growth President David McIntosh. David, how are you? I'm great, Peter. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so before we dive into the fellowship, 
what what took you so long to have a C3? What 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 was the impetus to add it and you know why now? Actually, I'll share with you I we started interviewing lots of candidates, um, probably about 300 a year, and over and over again I would hear from a good Republican how they were for cutting taxes, they wanted to keep government small. Um, but really, when I ask them, why do you want to be in Congress, they would say, I just want to solve problems. And it, it occurred to me, having been there, that means they're going to expand government or use government to solve problems because they're in government if they're a member of Congress. And so I realized we've got to catch people before they become public servants and teach them the principle that free markets, individual liberty, individual initiatives solve problems way better than the government does and instill that into them, train them with the best thinkers in that area. And so we thought, let's let's do that through an educational institution. We Some of our programs, like the scorecards, could be done in a C3 because it's public education. And we also are an advocate for free market principles, limited government, and we could do research in critical areas to try to forward that. So we set up the C3. Um, the fellowship you mentioned was our first program. We've also got the state scorecards that track how members vote in their state legislatures. And we've published probably a dozen or so critical papers um, that are on key issues that affect the policy based on free market principles. And I want to touch on some of those other things the this foundation is doing, but let's let's go into the fellowship. So what is the goal with that? The, the goal there is to really train next generation of leaders and do three things. One, teach them free market principles, uh, have them exposed to Bastiat, um, Milton Friedman, the and along with limited government principles and how good leaders can be corrupted in Washington by the way the system works in Congress to force people to vote for bigger spending bills and what you can do to try to resist that. Um, teach them those principles and, and methods and strategies for promoting individual liberty. And then second, give them media training so they can be winsome representatives out in their communities. And these are people who are in their 30s, early 40s, a few 20-year-olds, a few 50-year-olds, but younger leaders who are already doing things in their communities. They're not candidates, so the, the political part of Club for Growth doesn't interact with them, but they're out there leading. And so we want them to be able to go do an interview, write um, op-eds, use social media to promote those ideas. But the third goal has turned out to be the most important. It's creating a network of these young leaders around the country who didn't know each other before we brought them together. They Afterwards, they'll combine and compare notes of city council to city council member, there's a lot of them who are former military who talk about what they can do now to serve when they're out of the military. That was modeled on the Federalist Society, which I, I'm one of the founders and board members there. But we, the Federalist Society created this network of conservative lawyers who went out and did projects on their own. And that's been a great success. It's fun for me to see and hear reports about how the fellows got together, a small group of them, and compared notes on how do you resist movements to have 
DEI and the city council that they work on, or co legislators that compare notes on bills that are coming up, and what are the most successful arguments to have a pro-liberty position. And, and I, I'm very happy that we were able to build, you know, it was one of those situations four years ago when we started, what will happen? And it, it's build it and they will come. It's really worked well. How many total have gone through the program? Right now, we've got just under 200, about okay. 185. And we were, I was literally talking with our um, executive director, Glenn, about next year's fellows. And we've got a, a group of 40 or 50 already that we've identified that we want to accept into the program. And who are these folks? I mean, you mentioned the separation between the, the, the Club for Growth side and what this is doing. But I got to imagine, just given the brand, there is perhaps some bias towards people who want to be candidates or want to be local leaders, state leaders, national leaders. Is that true? Or do you want to disabuse me of that? Uh, no, it's probably the case that that's part of their desire. It's not part of our uh, filtering process or application process. Um, they've ranged from a lot of state legislators who want to have an education about how Congress works, but also they have different challenges at the state level where people want them to be pro-business, which is different than being pro-free market, right? Because if, if they're pro-business, they'll stick their thumb on the scale to help one set of businesses over another. And they're think tank leaders, um, businessmen, businesswomen who are interested in government and politics. And what we do is we bring them together for these monthly Zooms uh, with a professor. Interestingly, we got started during COVID, so we couldn't do the live meetings. And we started doing Zoom programs, and that's turned out to be a great thing to continue even after COVID. We've got a couple people who are very involved in politics. The, one of them is a state chairman in Alabama. One of our early fellows ran for and became state chairman in, in Texas. But that's sort of, that is somewhat the exception. Most of them are people who are, they're civic leaders in their town, their community, and in their state. Oh, you mentioned media training earlier. One of the things I really like about your fellowship, the things I've read about it, is that you are touching on some of these things that other trainings aren't hitting. And getting conservative leaders to actually be resilient in hostile environments is a big deal. I've done media training before. It's hard. Uh, and you get people saying bad things to you, but they say bad things to you in real life and make you answer those, you know, when did you stop beating your wife type questions. So tell us about the murder boards and the media training that you're putting these folks through. Yeah. And this was something, again, we learned from the Federalist Society where they trained young lawyers in the Supreme Court battles to be able to go do press interviews and explain that, um, you know, th these nominees are actually good people and here's why it's important. So we, we hired a group, the CRC, that has done that before, told them, let's create an atmosphere where uh, they're going to have to do a press interview. And have a, they, the way we do it is they form in small groups and they all watch each other perform, do the, and then they critique and, and evaluate and learn from the expert but from each other on how to do things better and how to do uh, their tricks of the trade, if you will, but how to turn an answer back to your issue rather than go along with the negative question that the reporter has. And we try to focus on, we have a positive message. Freedom works. Free market works. It blesses everybody in the society. Uh, let's focus on those benefits and blessings 
even when the negative question comes from the reporter. And then the murder boards are, are the staff here at the Club for Growth. You know, we, we think of the worst, nastiest questions that we can ask them and put them on the spot just so they get used to being relaxed and comfortable coming back with an answer to that. That's great. I mean, that's that's so valuable. And, you know, getting people to be able to defend their ideas, not just behind a party label, but to have have the the, the depth to it is so important. I got a great note the other day from one of our fellows. He's the Utah State Treasurer, Marlo Oaks. And Marlo was called to testify before the House Ways and Means Committee about the diversity, equity, and inclusion issue. And he got some pretty nasty questions from the Democrats. Um, later, he wrote me and said, look, the, the media training that you all had me do prepared me for that. It made me comfortable. I wasn't nervous. And it helped me know how to take a negative question and turn it back to my positive points. Um, so I, I was, it's great when you set up a program and you're leading the organization to have somebody write you and say, hey, thank you. It really helped me when I was doing this. Amen. Well, briefly, before we wrap up, you mentioned the scorecard and some of the other research that you're doing with the foundation. Tell us about those, particularly that scorecard. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So for a long time, Club for Growth did the Washington scorecard for House and Senate. That let us evaluate which people were doing a really good job for freedom and which ones weren't. We realized that's all public education, so the C3 can pick it up. But um, as we started the foundation, we also realized there's a missing information gap, if you will, at the state legislative effort. A lot of people, Republicans who run as conservatives, go and then they end up voting for tax increases. They vote for spending on uh, development projects that benefit the certain businesses but, but are costly for the taxpayer. And so we've started initially with about 10 states. I think we're up to about 30 doing state legislative scorecards. And you can imagine, Peter, people who live off a of reputation as I'm a conservative Republican, and then they get a 60% on our state scorecard from the Club for Growth Foundation, uh, they, they come and complain. And, and they'll come up with the strangest excuses. Oh, well, I had to do that. We also noticed that a lot of them skip votes on things like a tax increase, and the, it would pass by voice vote, or they wouldn't, they wouldn't be recorded as voting, so they couldn't be dinged by their constituents in their race. So we started a, a separate scorecard on percentage of votes that they missed. And again, I got a lot of complaints from people who are on the Republican side saying, hey, this is terrible. You know, I, I was I had to miss it because I had to go to dinner with one of my constituents. And I'm thinking, well, that's a lousy excuse for not doing your job. Um, so it's it's been very helpful. Uh, a couple of years ago, we started looking to see where we've been in a state three or four years are the scores improving? And we've noticed there's been a shift among the Republican legislators to be much more conservative in their voting record as a result of people being, paying attention, their constituents being able to look at the scorecard and ask them, hey, what, why are you so low on a Club for Growth scorecard? I think that's great. And, you know, I, you said it at the beginning, you've reiterated a couple times just the difference between having a certain political label and the actual ideology behind it and being able to back that up. And uh, I think this program and everything you're doing with the C3 really, really helps to improve that a lot. And that's a big deal and, and a, probably a really big deal as we go into a very 
actionable year for you all. <laughs> uh, yeah, over on the, the political side on the C4. Um, and I have to say the the real blessing of the fellowship have been what the fellows themselves have been doing. Um, three of the guys in the first class decided last year to run for Congress. And we knew them, we interviewed them, put them through our process. And then the C3, the foundation, doesn't do politics. So we said, good, good for you, do what you want to do. But the C4 part of the Club for Growth picked it up, we endorsed them, raised money and helped them get elected, and now all three are members of Congress. And we've helped a lady in um, North uh, South Carolina, Ellen Weaver, run against a school union rep to be superintendent of education. And she's a huge pro-school choice proponent. And we helped her get elected on the political side of Club for Growth, but we knew about her because she'd been one of our fellows. And so there's, there's a legally allowed continuity there, but we were careful to make sure the foundation doesn't do politics, doesn't engage in it, and we tell the fellows that. The, this doesn't mean you're going to get a Club for Growth support if you do run for office. We're here to educate you and, and have you and educate the public. I think that's so great. And we need people to really understand the ideas. Those are the people we actually want running the country. So, and running the states and running our, our city councils. David McIntosh, really appreciate you sharing all this with us today. Great to be with you, Peter. The American Enterprise Institute is often credited as being the oldest think tank in Washington, D.C. And whether you have realized it or not, you have read the work emerging from its panoply of scholars. Given its stately position and breadth of subject areas, it is well-suited for sharing some of that expertise in the form of leadership and training programs. Its leadership network does just that, exposing scores of grass-tops leaders from across the country in each of more than 21 cohorts so far that have gone through the program. Rebecca Good is the Managing Director of Outreach at AEI, overseeing a number of talent training programs. Uh, but Leadership Network is one of those, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, Rebecca, there are so many think tanks around the country and in Washington. Before we go too deep into the Leadership Network, what do you say when people ask you what makes AEI unique among all those think tanks? Well, I love that question because I think that we we are um, quite unique. Founded in 1938 in response to the Great Depression and some um, policy that was not very free enterprise oriented at the time, um, we started as a steady place uh, to do enduring public policy research without taking any federal money. Um, and we work very hard um, and have as a core principle that we don't have influence of our funders taking an active part in our scholarship. We don't have a C4. We don't try to fund a PAC. We do research. And we, um, because of that, we're able to stand kind of above or outside of the fray of a lot of the partisan um, norms that are in our country now. Um, and so we're proud, very proud of our um, ability to contribute to the national narrative from a, a neutral position and really um, let the the scholarship drive around ideas of freedom, opportunity, and enterprise. Yeah, I know one of the things that Arthur Brooks and now Robert Doerr uh, as presidents of the organization are always very proud of is just the the diversity amongst the leaders. They're all free market grounded, but there is a lot of diversity amongst the scholars and they go in different directions. And I think that is one of the things that makes makes you really interesting. All right, so let's talk about the Leadership Network because uh, it's a great program. I've actually gone through it. I'm an alumni of it. Uh, so what was the original idea behind the Leadership Network and what does that experience look like? 
Well, yes, fall 17, I think. Uh, I was actually a member in fall of 16. So uh, we're very close together in our experience as members of Leadership Network. AI works with leaders. That's just what we do, period, Leadership Network or not. Um, and we realized in 2014 that we we could do more to reach leaders outside of Washington. So we had a nice pipeline to uh, the Hill, to the executive branch, even um, uh, Supreme Court justices in some cases. But outside of Washington, we knew that there was an opportunity to reach leaders and communities and cities, educational networks, policy networks, um, and our patented approach to serving leaders in Washington is also relevant at the state level. So we launched the leadership network um, so that um, we could um, not only have our scholars uh, insights serving states and state leaders, but also to provide an opportunity for state leaders to know one another. So what does that experience look like? They come, you bring them to Washington, to AEI. Uh, yes. What does that couple of days where they're together look like? Well, up until now, it's been about a two and a half day experience. This year, we're trying something new and re- reducing it to a day and a half with hopes that we might be able to now in our 10th year, um, reach certain people that maybe in the past couldn't have given two and a half days. Maybe they can give a day and a half um, in this sort of new season of Leadership Network. But we we fully fund the whole thing. They stay in a um, nice hotel nearby, come to our beautiful building and experience just really a back-to-back uh, overview and uh, and deep sessions are totally an hour, hour and a half exposure to a variety of scholars. So we have um, scholars going very high level. Yuval Levin is one of our most enjoyed and requested scholars from Leadership Network, no surprise. So he um, is often able to talk on the, the overarching themes um, uh, around the constitutional pieces of AEI's commitments. Um, but then we get very specific and with some of our upward mobility scholars or education scholars or housing scholars and, and get a very specific on policy um, that seems to be working across the country or places that we see opportunity. You know, I, I, I think of back myself as a member, I was very, I was in the education space at the time um, and I was very siloed into my own um, place of thinking and education, um, which I needed to be. But it was wonderful to have an opportunity to bring my head up just a little bit and see how it um, uh, th- those educational insights were interacting with with other other ideas across the policy stage, not just my own silo. So that was one of the biggest um, gifts to me, and I think is to our participants. I think that's right. I think the ability to see how different policies interact and what's going on in policy areas that you have no idea about. For some reason, I particularly remember a conversation about Narcan and like overdose and overdose death and opioids. And like, that is not an area I focus on at all. But yet it stuck with me uh, because the, the scholars are compelling and it's and it's interesting. So, so who are these people? Who are the people that are in the seats that you're bringing in, that you're giving this experience to? So again, we work hard to find um, the the real movers and shakers that are that are making things happen across the country. So oftentimes that is the person that has the figurehead title, right? Uh, maybe it is the governor, um, but sometimes it's also the lieutenant governor, or sometimes it's the primary staff person who's who's moving things along. Um, so in an organization, um, most of the time you will see that that we are able to recruit C level people um, in nonprofits and. Um, you know, state legislators, we, we have legislators involved. Um, and also, we, you know, sometimes there are the, um, the people that we just know, gosh, if you know this person in that state, you kind of know everybody. Um, and that's who we're trying to find not only um, 
for the value that that brings to the conversation in the room and to the uh, opportunity of members to get to know one another and peers, but also, frankly, in this new season of LN, um, it, it would helps AEI scholars actually um, connect with communities and um, make an impact with the results of their findings that, um, you know, it, it's one thing to, to write about them, but to be able to connect them with the movers in their community is, is a big goal in this next season um, with more intentionality. You mentioned a new season of the Ellen, uh, the Leadership Network. Talk to me about that, because as I understand it, you're changing your focus a little bit about who you were trying to get in the room, or or maybe not changing, but narrowing a little. Narrowing, that that's right, that's right. I think that um, we are still recruiting the same kind of person. We really... I want this to be an opportunity for true executives, true leaders, true movers and shakers to um, become informed and educated, not only in AEI's content, but in AEI's approach, this sort of nonpartisan, non-angry, just just empirical, um, kind, hopefully, we hope, just civil. Um, and we just think it's good for the country to, to, for all of us to know that that still exists and that that's the heartbeat of our, of our ethos of our country. But to also then consider how... Um, not only from an educational role, which has been the the primary role of the Leadership Network in the past, but also in this new chapter, um, my team is working hard to connect um, our members with our scholars at, at a level that we weren't pursuing as intently in years prior. So, so we have actually reduced the number of cohorts per year to one intentionally this year because we want our staff to have time to work with our members more. We have a twice monthly newsletter that goes out to members. The, the Elise Newbert is the director of it, who is just, she she's insanely personable and uh, leans in deeply with all the members and they feel like they know her, they know each other. Um, and we want to take that to the next level to um, really apply their ability to connect with change on the ground with our scholar insights. So that's that's chapter two of the LN that continues with robustness um, that we've had before. So I get the value to AEI because you're getting to expose your work to a lot of influential people across the country. What do you think the value is for the people in the room sitting through this? Well, apart from the fact that you get to sit in a room with um, some of our preeminent scholars that many people are just happy to try to get a book from us, you know, from some of these scholars, um, there is the educational um, component. But beyond that, I do think it's the network part of the leadership network. So, you know, if you're in the room and you've got a peer from another state board of education in the room, say you're from Michigan and the person from Nevada shows up, you know, it's just an a excellent opportunity to meet them, know them, understand that there's um, an, a shared alliance with at least some of AI's perspective. Um, I think we find that people um, are delighted to find who else is in the room. Like, oh, I didn't know someone from that. Your organization was aligned with AEI. That's very interesting to me. Um, and that uh, often is forwarding careers. Um, yeah, of course, all of the normal professional development pieces that we would hope to offer a member, um, we continue to offer uh, places to connect outside of your own cohort and are able to field requests from those members that have been a part to provide you know, a scholar could come to your city and share something, or you just have a little bit more of an end, frankly, to AI. And, you know, obviously, I mean, you're 10 years in and you're 
clearly have done some thinking about it and you aren't blowing it up. You're, you're continuing on. So you probably, I assume think the leadership network has been a success. Mm -hmm. Do you really see it getting AEI's work into all those smaller communities across the country outside of the DC echo chamber? Strangely enough. Yes. (laughs) We're at 1600 members and growing. We're in 49 States. I'm committed to getting Hawaii in this next cohort (laughs) so that we can move to 50. And yes, I mean, I think the proof is in the pudding. So we've hosted this last year, um, many external facing events across the country because of our uh, relationship with leadership network members. So we have scholar Ian Rowe, who's um, big in open mobility and education. And one of our leadership networks members in San Antonio brought him this last May and had a you know room full of 50 people here to hear Ian on school choice in Texas. Then we moved to um, Salt Lake City, where we had a leadership member network from the Sutherland Institute in Salt Lake who helped us bring a free forum um, showcasing many of our scholars, Ian and others, um, to Salt Lake City and their community, um, um, including state legislators. And we have gone to Indianapolis this last year because of a leadership network member that's very well plugged into the local think tank and business community there. And we're working a lot on workforce um, through our connection to her. So, I mean, it's working and it's exciting. And I think there's a lot of energy and momentum in the building for it because, you know, upstairs is seeing how uh, we're making able to make connections between our scholar insight and and our country that we love. And hopefully it'll lead to positive changes out in the states and and that those good changes in the states can actually trickle up uh, to the, yes. the national environment. That would be good. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited to see how Leadership Network continues to evolve and grow in this next iteration of its life. Rebecca Good, thanks for sharing all this with us. I'm glad to be here and um, spread the word. Our cohorts are growing. If we are going to make the values of limited government and free enterprise pervasive, we need strong leaders who can eloquently communicate and lead with those values. These three programs at National Review Institute, Club for Growth Foundation, and American Enterprise Institute are among the best at helping to expand the base on which we can build that better future. But they are by no means the only ones. The leadership program of the Rockies does a superb job of mid-career leadership training out in Colorado and has expanded into Connecticut as well with its Charter Oak Society. And some state think tanks are experimenting with similar programs, like my friends at the Pelican Institute in Louisiana. And I'm sure there are others that I am forgetting, uh, but they all have one thing in common. All these programs grow stronger with donor dollars. If this is an area you think is important, show it with your charitable contributions. We at Donors Trust are happy to talk with you about leveraged ways to use your philanthropic capital to make progress in this arena or in whatever interest area drives you. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe in your podcast player of choice, which, by the way, could also be YouTube, where you can find all our episodes. We do not have the video of me and the guests talking, but it is a great way to listen in the background while you work. Watch for more great episodes coming up in the next few weeks. Until then, thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon.